Welcome to Inspiration from American History with Rebecca Price Janney. Today's story is Life is Short, Then You Die. According to a popular bumper sticker, Life is Short, Then You Die. Never was that truer than in colonial America, when the average lifespan was just 56 years. Many people died far younger. Death came from complications in childbirth, from infectious diseases, poor sanitation, and lack of medical knowledge. This was a society radically different from our own, in which frail and fleeting human life was lived out in the expectation of salvation or damnation, eternal happiness or torment. Daniel A. Cohen refers to it as a culture preoccupied with the proximity of death. When a measles epidemic broke out in 1713 in Boston, the Reverend Cotton Mather observed it was going to be a time of trouble for all of the families. He saw it as his job to prepare them to meet their maker. He was a man of sorrows himself. He outlived two of three wives and 12 of his 15 children. During the measles outbreak, he buried a wife and three children, including newborn twins. Although Mather was grief-stricken, he said it comforted him that God had extinguished in my wife the fear of death. Likewise, before his two-year-old daughter died, she told her father she was confident she was going to be with Jesus. Crushed in spirit, he resolved to continue ministering to the people of Boston, showing them a patient submission to the will of God. Colonial Americans faced death with a measured acceptance, believing it was part of a fallen world. And it was a person's responsibility to accept the bad with the good. The anger people so often express toward God today after a loved one dies wasn't part of the early American spirit. The colonists saw themselves as sinners who deserved nothing but condemnation from God, who in his love gave them grace instead. If anyone was to be on the defensive, it was them. In spite of the Christian foundation of early America, in the opening decades of the 18th century, enthusiasm about spreading the gospel throughout the New World had become smoke and embers in many communities. During that time, a new wave of divine activity broke out, what Peter Marshall calls a reawakening of a deep national desire for the covenant way of life. This yearning did not die with the passing of the Puritan era, he says, but only went dormant. It was a desire which would produce a new generation of clergy who would help to prepare America to fight for her life. Among that group was one of the Great Awakening's key figures, George Whitfield, who observed at the beginning of the revival the generality of preachers talk of an unknown and unfelt Christ, 
The reason why congregations have been so dead is because they had dead men preaching to them. How can dead men beget living children? One minister who had been laboring for nearly 10 years with less than dramatic results was Jonathan Edwards. He accepted his first charge at the age of 17, but just before going to New York to begin his position, he experienced a profound conversion to Christ. Six years later, he moved to Northampton, Massachusetts, one of New England's earliest settled towns, to minister there with his maternal grandfather. He discovered early on the descendants of the zealous Puritans and pilgrims had exchanged their spiritual heritage for a love of ease. Although he preached deeply and thoughtfully about the individual's need for salvation, Edwards had a dry, monotonous style. He avoided making eye contact with his congregation. When he began a sermon series about justification by faith alone, he began to notice startling changes in his parishioners, including a greater seriousness about their spiritual state. One notorious woman came to Christ, and soon many others followed. Edwards wrote in his account of the revival that followed, This seems to have been a very extraordinary dispensation of providence. God has, in many respects, gone out of and much beyond his usual and ordinary way. He noted the revival touched people of all ages and socioeconomic conditions, and a hallmark of the movement was a great and earnest concern about the great things of religion and the eternal world. All other talk but about spiritual and eternal things was soon thrown by. Edwards wrote of the glorious alteration that occurred when God poured out his spirit upon Northampton. He wrote, In the spring and summer following, Anno 1735, the town seemed to be full of the presence of God. It never was so full of love nor so full of joy, and yet so full of distress as it was then. Most, Edwards discovered, were awakened with a sense of their miserable condition before a holy and just God, and the danger they are in of perishing eternally. No one was better at describing the fearful torments of hell than Edwards, whose sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, is one of the best known in American history. When Edwards delivered that message, such was the influence upon the congregation, which had assembled in a careless mood, that some of them actually caught hold of the benches to save themselves from slipping into hell. Edwards was also much interested in heaven, and his view of it was according to a traditional theocentric model. By the middle of the 17th century, people believed heaven is for God and the eternal life of the saints revolves around a divine center. Heaven is fundamentally a religious place, a center of worship, of divine revelation, and pious conversations with sacred characters. Eternity would be spent contemplating and worshiping the God of all creation, and in so doing, 
humanity would find complete fulfillment and joy. The revival that cleaned up Northampton spread to the other colonies as well. In New Jersey, the Dutch Reformed pastor Theodore Freelinghuysen had been preaching about heartfelt conversion since his arrival in America in 1720, appalled by the spiritual apathy he found among the colonists. He went on to influence William Tennant, who, with his son Gilbert, preached salvation by faith in Pennsylvania. In addition, the Presbyterian Samuel Davies labored toward that end in Virginia, while David Brainerd ministered among the Native Americans. Brainerd was in open awe of the power of God, which fell on one village after another as he preached. Indians would change so dramatically that skeptical whites would come to the meetings to mock, only to be converted themselves. What Brainerd described as an irresistible force of a mighty torrent or swelling deluge brought many to salvation and the promise of a glorious hereafter. These evangelical preachers came to be known as New Lights, and the old guard ministers who had been presiding over spiritually dead congregations ridiculed their unconventional ways. They asked, What business William Tennant had training farm boys to preach the gospel, and referred contemptuously to Tennant's training school as the Log College. It provided the foundation for Princeton University. On the other hand, Gilbert Tennant preached against the danger of an unconverted ministry. He told his people, As a faithful ministry is a great ornament, blessing, and comfort to the Church of God, Even the feet of such messengers are beautiful. So, on the contrary, an ungodly ministry is a great curse and judgment. These caterpillars labor to devour every green thing. While God's Spirit provokes strong passions that long lay dormant in colonial America, He was raising up a prophet across the sea in England to further the Great Awakening. George Whitfield preached with such zeal that more traditional clergy refused to allow him in their pulpits, both in his native England and in the colonies. He desired to preach in a fresh new way, and he called upon his flair for drama to call people to salvation. It mortified staid Englishmen that Whitfield often shouted and danced and sometimes cried while speaking of people living hopelessly apart from Christ. Fellow pastors told Whitfield, Tone it down. Stop prancing and flailing. Don't be so loud. But he simply could not. The hope Christ offered to lost people for this life and the one to come kept him moving. As a result of the Great Awakening, church attendance boomed in the colonies. In addition, the moral tone of the day improved vastly, and there was a breaking down of barriers between people of various denominations and regions as they labored as equals in Christ's vineyard. Many pastors gave their lives completely to help populate heaven and steal from hell, among them Whitfield. Between 1736 and 1770, 
He delivered roughly 18,000 sermons in the American colonies. In one six-week period, he delivered 100 messages, and in a five-month time frame, he covered nearly 2,000 miles. He preached through exhaustion and severe illness because he passionately desired to introduce people to the living Christ who had saved his own soul from the ravages of sin and death. In September 1770, he went to New Hampshire to speak, but asthma made him barely able to breathe. A local pastor observed that there was no way Whitfield would be able to preach. In response, with a look toward heaven, Whitfield prayed, Lord Jesus, I am weary in thy work, but not of it. If I have not finished my course, let me go and speak for thee one more time in the fields, and seal thy truth, and come home and die. At first, when Whitfield rose to address the population of Exeter and its environs, he rambled breathlessly. After a brief pause, however, he told the people he was waiting upon God's help, certain it would come one more time. Then he went on to preach strongly, powerfully, for two hours. The Reverend Jonathan Parsons noted he had such a sense of the incomparable excellencies of Christ that he could never say enough of him. As dawn broke the following morning, Whitfield died. Thank you for joining me for Inspiring Stories from American History. I'm Rebecca Price Janney.